Welcome back to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a podcast all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In today's episode, Jonathan preaches a sermon at First Love Church in Ocala, Florida on the topic of shame, and we hope this brings you encouragement in life today. Enjoy. Thank you, Heather. I've, um, hey, <laughs> like how that sounds. I've had such a great week here. So people, some people came from far? Who came from the furthest? Yo, know, the wise men, that's true. Always the wise men. Well, that's a spiritual answer right there. I thought you were going to say Jesus. Because that's the right answer to most every question. He came a long way to be with us, brother. <laughs> um so glad you're all here. I've had a great couple days hanging out in Ocala. I'm considerably more rested. I didn't say this Sunday morning. You know, you'd think I would have said this as a disclaimer um, in case I said anything incoherent. But I actually, and this ties into what I'm talking about tonight. I actually drove all night Saturday night to get here. Um, was not my plan. It's funny because I've had to do that twice coming here, and I never do that. So it's not, I, I take this all very seriously. It's like I had two events in Nashville on Saturday, and it's just how it worked out. So Anyway, I feel much more coherent, so if I seem brighter and fresher tonight than I did Sunday morning, there is a reason for this. Um, if you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15, and I'm just going to share for a few minutes tonight on, I mean, I don't want to act like it's a big deal, but I kind of feel like at this point in my life is, I think a lot about scripture and um, a lot of things about the big story, but really there's just a handful of things that have truly changed my life, like a couple hinge points to where a few things that I've come to see differently than I used to that's really changed everything in terms of how I think about God and life and scripture, and tonight I really want to share one of those things. I feel like in a way this has been here in me for a while, but it's been fairly recent where I felt like I really had the tools to be able to articulate this because I think it was something intuitive but maybe um, coming to see in a different way in the text so hopefully that'll be helpful let's pray one more time um, God I was so moved by the just the sweet worship tonight and even singing away in the manger and just uh, something so tender about those words and our hearts are tender and open open to you open to each other and we've already welcomed you Holy Spirit we just we just want to pray for your illumination now because I just feel like some of the things I'm talking about tonight in particular, I just know it's above my pay grade to be able to teach. Um, there are just some things that truly cannot be comprehended with the mind, but to take a revelation of the Spirit, because they're not things to be understood so much as to be revealed. So I pray that tonight for, in the words of the Apostle Paul, a spirit of revelation uh, to quicken us and to allow us to see what we need to see. If any of this is not useful, let it fall to the floor. But God, if it is you, I just pray that you would uh, open our eyes wide. And I, I pray specifically tonight, I just feel like maybe somehow that there's a couple things in this that that really might bring some revelation for somebody. It could be fairly life-changing. And it's these things are changing my life. So we just pray for the grace now. You would touch our eyes that we might see, that you would... Touch our ears, open them that we might hear the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So 
here's what I'm going to do if you'll permit me. I want to talk about Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. I don't want to presume too much. I don't know if everybody's been to Sunday school or not. I mean, I talked to uh, somebody last night who was here on Sunday. I think that's, you know, first time in church in years. So I don't know what people know or don't know. But if you'll permit me, I want to talk about Jesus's famous parable of the prodigal son. But I'm really going to skip a lot of the setup because I want to focus on one particular thing. I love the three parables that Jesus tells in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep, of the lost coin, and then finally of the prodigal son. I always think it's funny that we call it the parable of the prodigal son because, you know, it's really about two lost sons and the weight of it actually lands on the elder. And what is the elder going to do with this now? You know, we call it the parable of the prodigal son. I love these stories because I think they give us unique insight into the character of God. Um, Jesus comes to make the Father known to us in ways that we could not have seen before. Every other revelation of God before was incomplete, before Christ comes. So much of Luke 15, I think, just reveals the heart of the Father in really beautiful and provocative ways. And there's a reason why people return to the prodigal son over and over again. But I'm just not going to do a lot of context. And it's funny, too, because not long ago, someone actually asked me to talk about the prodigal son. And I got so excited about it that I think I preached eight sermons on the prodigal son in one, in one because there's all these things that I love. I really want to restrain myself because there's really just one thing, one thing only, um, that I want to highlight in this text tonight. So Luke 15, beginning with verse 11, we will let's at least read a bit. Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me which, of course, is extremely insulting. He's asking for his inheritance early. It's the same thing as saying, I wish you were dead in a kind of a patriarchal, tribal culture. This is the most disreputable thing you could possibly do. But the father does this. He divided the property between them, which says a lot, by the way, about, see, here I'm already preaching, about just what love does and the character of love. I find it fascinating, the story that the father surely knows that his son is going to misspend this money and gives him the inheritance anyway. <laughs> which is a painful lesson about what it means to love is that when you really love, you leave the back door open and it really is unconditional. Like there really is this way, like, I love you. I, I know this is going to go bad, but this is what you want. There is a freedom that's there. It's, it's hard for us to love that way, but that is how, how God loves us with this radical freedom. Anyway, a few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he traveled to a distant country and there he squandered his property and dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, love that phrase, he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. And you can leave that up for just one second. I'll, I'll just mention this. One of the things I love most about the story is that there's nothing in the world that motivates the prodigal son to come home 
except the fact that he gets hungry. So if your idea of repentance is having noble motives, please be let off the hook right here. He didn't didn't just one day decide, boy, what I did to my dad was so wrong. How could I do that? How could I break his heart in that way? That was terrible. I owe him an apology. What? No. That wasn't how it went at all. He just got hungry. He just got hungry. And he didn't know anywhere else to go. Didn't know anything else to do. So that's when he says, I think I ought to go back and apologize to my dad. Maybe get some kind of a job here. Wasn't motivated by anything noble. I'm just saying that as just, just as dropping a footnote to say, there's not a wrong way to come back to God. There's not a wrong motivation. You can't get that wrong. Do you hear what I'm saying? If you come back to the Father's house, there's not a wrong way to do it. There's not a wrong reason to do it. What if my reasons are selfish? Whose reasons are not selfish? I have yet to know anybody who, who, who really comes to the Father's house that doesn't get there more or less. And I know some of us are born into attrition. But, you know, for the most part, if people come to the Father's house, it's because they bombed out somewhere. That's how it goes. It's all right to come home just because you're hungry and you're in need. I just thought I'd throw that out there. So verse 20, he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and he kissed him. And I'm not going to read any further. Uh, typically, if I were talking about this text, I would want to talk about the father seeing him from afar. And he smothers his son with kisses. And he brings out the, the ring and the sandals. And they kill the fatted calf. And there's so many dimensions to all those things that I think are so great and so wonderful. But I really want to keep the focus tight tonight on just one thing. I want you to think for just a few moments about how this prodigal son sees his father from the place of the pig pen. For a good Jewish boy, the most disreputable place he could possibly be. Pigs are the most ceremonially unclean. This is the only kind of job he can get. It's a step above slave labor. I mean, everything about the, it's just it's just a bad, bad scene for this boy. And while he's in the hog pen and he begins to think about his father, he begins to imagine what his father might say or what his father might do. He begins to imagine what it would be like to reconcile with his father. The best thing he can think of the best thing that he can dare to hope for is that maybe if I get back, my father will strike a business arrangement with me. Maybe if I agree to do a certain amount of work, he'll give me a job. Not to, there's, I mean, no thought of being received back in the house as his son. Best case scenario, he thinks he might be able to strike a business deal. That, that, that's all he's got. Now, for that to be the best he can imagine about his father, that should tell us plenty about exactly how his perception has now been altered living in this bottom-feeding kind of place. We know by the end of the story, this doesn't at all represent the character of his father. His father's not going to take him on as a slave. That's unbelievable. But that's the best he can imagine. That's the best he can hope for from that place. So for me, there's an insight in this text that might sound simple to you, but has been life-changing for me. And maybe you think, you know, well, you pull that out of one text, that's great. I'll just say in my experience, 
in real life as well as in the broader story of Scripture, I find this principle to bear out over and over again. Whenever in my life I've got myself into trouble, whenever there has been sin, whenever there's been rebellion, stubbornness, stupidity of any and all kinds, and while this word sin can still can be problematic for some people, it is very much a word that I use. And, you know, shorthand for me for sin, I don't know if that does it for you, and I know we can talk about missing the mark and technical definitions and all that. At the end of the day, I think sin is always about selfishness. Sin is always about pursuing what you want at everybody else's expense. I'm going to get what I want, and it doesn't matter how it affects anybody else. That's sin. Selfishness, living for the sake of self, everybody else's expense. And whenever I've been in the place of my sin, whenever I've been in the place of my shame, what I've found consistently is that from that place, I see God differently. From that place, I don't see God the way he's described in the second half of Luke 15. Now, I've known that God. And I've been taught about the love of God and the unconditional love of God for most of my life. But it's crazy how in the place of selfishness and self-deception that I still retreat back to that view of God. Where he's a punitive ogre. Where at best, maybe he's the kind of guy who'd strike up a deal if I can bring something that, you know, to the table that might be beneficial in some way. I see him so differently. But what I want you to see from this text is that in the story, the father of the prodigal son never changes. God doesn't change. The only thing that changes is how the prodigal sees his father. His sin doesn't change his father. His sin changes him. And I'd love for you to sit with that for a moment. His sin doesn't change his father. His sin changes him. What gets altered? God's posture? God's heart? Or his own perception of God? Nothing objectively about God here changes. Um, it's funny to me how a handful of rumors about God the Father taken out of context from really bad readings of Scripture have caught on so broadly. How many times in my life have I heard people say things like, God cannot look upon sin. God the Father can't look upon sin or cannot look upon sinners. First of all, that's taken from half of a verse in the Old Testament that's taken wildly out of context. But I'm not going to deal with that verse. I'm simply going to offer as my whole refutation, because I feel like this is a fairly big refutation, not a handful of verses, but I'll give you four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you tell me if God is able to look upon sin and look upon sinners. Because this is the whole scandal of the ministry of Jesus, is that he's constantly eyeball to eyeball with sinners. God can't even look upon sin. Let me help you with some Trinitarian theology right now. If Jesus is God in the flesh, then who do you think is sitting with tax collectors? Who do you think it is that's sitting across the table, right? Like, Jesus is God. Jesus is constantly looking upon sin and upon sinners. So, so, so banish that notion from your head that from your place of sin that God can't see you or he can only see you through the blood of Jesus. I love the blood of Jesus. 
And the blood of Jesus does, in fact, save us from sin, the devil, and from ourselves. But it doesn't save us from God. God is never the one that we needed saving from. And it's just never been true. Thank you for the three people who are excited about this. That, that God can't look upon people in their sin. Here, here, here's a better way of saying it. From the place of our sin, we can't look at God. That's the issue. I've never said it like that before, but I'll try to say it like that again. Somebody give me a note. I don't know. But you hear what I'm saying, though? It's like, it doesn't change, it doesn't change how God sees us, but it changes how we see God. That's the problem. And it's funny how even if you know about the love of God through Scripture, through people who taught you, through some experience of God's presence, it's funny how that's still the place that we retreat when we're in a place of shame. Because, man, there's something about that place of shame in particular where you, you just, oh, no matter what I know in my head, it's the, the way I see God is still so messed up. So I, I find myself on kind of a mission right now because I'm more convinced than I've ever been that the thing that really takes people out, and I want you to hear what I'm saying. There are all kinds of ways that you can sabotage your own life. There are plenty of things that, have, that are unhealthy. But I see it over and over again in people's lives. You see if this bears out for you. Man, somebody, somebody makes a mistake. Somebody makes a wrong choice. That's not the thing that really takes people out. What will take you out, though, is shame. Like, shame is the thing that will destroy you. Shame is the thing that will eat you alive. It's funny to me how I know when I talk about things like this, sometimes I think it can make certain kinds of Christians get nervous. Because I think some of this stuff is so ingrained in us that some of us really still think, that shame might be helpful or redemptive. Like that we need a little bit of shame. Just, just like just enough. Like, shame, like, sometimes shame. So just think about this in context of your own life. How many times have you ever made a good decision? Have you ever made a better decision because of shame? Because I don't know how that works for you. This, this is true in my life in big and small ways. Shame puts me on a spiral the moment so, so then it's not not only do I feel bad I feel bad that I feel bad and I just get and the, the and and then it's like it's not that first it's not that first move over the ledge it's that it's that thing that happens when it's like oh man well I'm already in a bad place so so what's the point like like that that's, that's when people's lives get out of control. That's where addiction swallows people up. So I'm going to tell you this, and I'm not going to embellish a single detail because this is just from a couple days ago. And while even if it grosses me out a little bit, I think this could be instructive. Now work with me here for just a minute. I am... I come from a long line of big people, wonderful, but big people. And so I, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever talked about this in a talk. Maybe just because it's like a Wednesday night in Ocala. It just seems all right to talk about. Because I can be self-conscious about such things. Like, like I, I really do battle with my weight. And I mean, I, 
I'll put it like this. So, like, back in 2011 or something, I lost 50 pounds, 55 pounds, something like that. I mean, I've been a lot heavier than I am. But, man, you don't understand, like, how much I love to eat. Like, it just, I live to eat. And when I travel, all I think about, all I think about is what I'm going to eat when I get there. And when I get done with one meal, I immediately start fantasizing about what the next one might be. And I feel like I spend so much of my life just dreaming about the next meal. You know, those of you who have been with me out to eat know that I can get very paralyzed at the, at the table with the menu because the options. You know, it's like I, every meal I feel like is my last, and I want to get it right. I can get really intense about this. But I also, you know, if you know me too, I have an all-or-nothing personality in general. So this is how this works for me. When I'm good, when I'm behaving, when I'm trying to be healthy, I'll go really healthy. And I, I try to do all the stuff that I most hate. I try to keep those carbs low, and I love carbs. I hate to say it. I possibly love carbs more than I do Jesus. I don't want that to be true. I'm afraid it might be true. I'm afraid I may love actual bread more than the bread of life. God, deliver me from this idolatry. I love carbs more than anything. But when I'm trying to be healthy, I try to keep the carbs low, the protein up, et cetera, et cetera. So last week, I had almost a whole week back at home. I haven't been home. I've been on the road. When I'm home, I try to be healthier. So I went a whole week where I'd been so healthy and I was eating next to no carbs and I was working out every day and I was being so good. And then I had a friend come in town I was excited to see and I went to a conference and I had a bunch of stuff happening within the course of like a couple days and I felt celebratory. And that one cheat meal turned into two cheat meals turned into three, turned to four, until finally, to bring this into real time, it's Saturday night. And after being at these two different events in Nashville during the day, now I'm getting out of town at, a gun, at an ungodly hour, and the only thing that made me want to stay awake or that made me care about life, maybe just not hate everybody and hate everything, was the prospect of food. So it starts off at 9 p.m. I left Nashville at 9 and the first thing I did was, went to, was go to Chick-fil-A. And I had the number one meal, large-sized, two packs of mayonnaise on my chicken sandwich. I had three packs of Chick-fil-A sauce with my large fries because that business is delicious. I can't think of a thing in the world that I don't believe would be enhanced by Chick-fil-A sauce. Now, I ate that at 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock, if you're going to eat like that, that is not the ideal time to do that metabolically. Do you know what I'm saying? But I ate it, and because I didn't gas up to full before I left, by 11 o'clock, I needed to get gas. And by then, I had a sweet tooth. So at 11 o'clock, when I got gas, I got a four-pack, because I love white chocolate, I got a four-pack of white chocolate Reese's Cups. Those are utterly delicious. That's 11 o'clock. And then I'm like, I'm not getting anything else in this trip. I have misbehaved so badly already, I'm going to be good the rest of the time. But I drove all night. 2.30 in the morning, I was hungry again. But I felt bad. Like, I didn't feel like I could do more Reese cups, though I thought about it. I looked at them in the gas station. I almost got more. But I thought, now that last taste was so sweet, I need something savory in my mouth. So then, and this isn't the worst thing, but I had two of them. I had two of those, like, packs of beef, turkey, and cheese. You know the kind we eat them together? I had two of them. That was 2 a.m. 
As I go on, it was raining like crazy. I had to pull the car off the road four or five times. It took me an hour, hour and a half longer to get here because the rain was so bad. So by the time I'm on the home stretch and almost here at 6 a.m., I am nearly dead. I was like, I was out of my mind. I was feeling, I was thinking crazy thoughts. I was just like, whatever. And I, you know what? The only thing in the world that could make me happy right now, because Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday, was I stopped at the McDonald's at 6 a.m., in which I had a sausage and egg biscuit and hash brown at 6. Now, I want to tell you guys, that's a night of debauchery right there. That's debauchery. I mean, think about that. From 9 p.m. to 6 a.m., that's a large-sized Chick-fil-A meal with three packs of Chick-fil-A sauce, four white chocolate Reese cups, two packs of beef jerky and cheese, and then like 6 a.m. to have a sausage and egg biscuit from McDonald's with hash. Are you kidding me? I mean, that really is awful. Because if I'm saying this, because I know how some people are, it's like because I try to keep myself... I'm trying to say healthy these days. Well, thin people, thin people, nothing. Do you understand? I put on five pounds that night. This is what I do. So then, because I'm, I'm radical like that. And I, I know I took way too long to tell that. It actually, I think it was fairly entertaining, even to me. But I took way too long to tell it. But I'm trying to underscore, but I really am just trying to underscore a, a simple point. I had been so healthy and so good that after I ate that meal at nine o'clock, from there on, who cares? I'm going to party like it's 1999, y'all. There are no rules left. I already felt so bad about what I was doing to my metabolism. No rules. I could eat anything. I could, like, man, it's crazy. And in that example, like one night, okay, well, that, that's something we can laugh at. But on a more serious level, this is what I see consistently with anybody who deals with any kind of addiction, any kind of self-destructive behavior. One thing that you feel bad about, and it's not so much that initial step as the shame that absolutely pulls you under. And, and what, I, what I believe gets, what happens here, and I mean, this is almost my, maybe this is another story for another time, this is almost my definition of hell right here. You get stuck on a loop in that delusion. You, you see God from that place, and you get stuck there. So then even if you hear about the love of God, even if God tries to break through in some way, you're stuck in that delusion. That's all you can see. Because from the loop of shame, that, that's just how God looks. And nobody can talk you out of it. It's how you just get stuck in that place of shame. And that's why at this point in my life, it's such a passion of mine just to see people break out of that place of shame because I don't think it motivates anybody. Shame has never produced holiness in anybody. Shame doesn't produce holiness. Shame produces hiding. Do you hear what I'm saying? Shame won't make you holy. Shame will make you hide. That's all. Shame won't make you behave better. After the four reason cups at 11, do you think that something happened to me like, this is just too far. I got to be good. Of course not. I had a long drive ahead of me. It's like the, the one thing just leads to more of the things. That's how that goes. <laughs> this is now going to forever be my illustration of sin was my drive down to Ocala to preach. I, was I coherent Sunday morning? Did I seem present? I felt, I felt present. That's remarkable. See, that's the Holy Ghost. You know God was here. 
because I don't know how I was still living after that. I should have been throwing up somewhere. Good grief. All that eating and then not sleeping? What? That's a terrible place to be. I crashed hard that afternoon, though. Shame, shame doesn't produce holiness. It produces hiding. You know, um, my friend Mike McCarg was in Nashville the other day, and he said something I just keep thinking about because he's into science and I'm not. I don't know anything about science. I don't understand, understand anything about science. I have no scientific skills. But Mike was talking about how... Um, he was talking about how they did this experiment with rats where they would give them small doses of heroin. I was like, this sounds like a fun experiment. <laughs> no, I didn't really think that. Um, but how, first of all, that how interesting it is, like even like for in their little rat brains, their heroin would cause them to isolate themselves. Like they would, they would get alone. They would get away from the group. But then they did this other experiment where they took some rats. They've now got addicted to heroin, and they put them in with a larger group of other rats that were not addicted to heroin. And this really blows my mind and makes me want to cry. <laughs> you know, they found out that by putting those rats in with the other rats that weren't addicted, that the, the other rats sort of forced the ones who were addicted to heroin to be social and to do things with the group, and that they slowly weaned off of it. Like, they still had the option of being able to hit the, I'm not, I don't have science terms, y'all. They still had the option of being able to hit the little button in the cage that could give them the heroin. And over time, they stopped hitting it because being in the community with the other rats, like somehow pulled them out. I mean, that's rats. How much more so true is that for, for people? That when people who have felt alienated and in darkness about a thing get in the light with other people? that somehow just the process of being in the light and being loved like pushes them to, to ultimately start choosing differently. And it'd be great, you know, if, if um, there was something you could just do to just flip a switch in your head to make that better. But what I see over and over again is people don't start to make better decisions until they know that they're loved and that they're safe. That, that's the order in which it works, not the other way around. Once they get it right... Then they can be in the Father's house. Then they can receive unconditional love and acceptance. Not how it works. It's, it's the love and acceptance is the only thing that changes anybody. I, 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 so when people want to push back on this out of concern for holiness, that's, that's, this is all I got. And I can't say it emphatically enough. Shame just doesn't work. It just does not work. It doesn't work the purposes of God. It doesn't bring conviction. It doesn't bring a change of heart. It doesn't make anybody better. It doesn't make anybody more motivated. Everybody's like this. Um, how many times have we seen in our lives people who, and most of us have experienced this personally, we've certainly seen it in people around us, that if they're talked about in a certain way, if they know they're perceived in a certain way, that then they feel like they've got no choice but to live into those kind of expectations. Like, oh, I've already been labeled. This is what people already think about me. Why not? That's what happens. So I think what has to happen, I, and I'm, I'm not going much longer, I promise. Well, I think what has to happen is that, and this is my prayer, is that we really do have to come to, to see God in a different way. We really do. I mean, it's so necessary. I'm not in a place by, at this point in my life by any means to where I feel like I'm living extra holy. But I will tell you this. 
I think I've got the most whole, healthy image of God that I've ever had. And what I've noted is that when I feel like I've fallen some way, I've never been able to get up faster than I am now and get back on task because I think I really am becoming convinced of this. I have to tell myself this over and over again sometimes that like when, when I feel separated from God in this way, I really do remind myself of this. It is literally in my head. The separation is in my head. It's not real. Read the last few verses of Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. When I feel separate, that's not reality. That's an illusion. That's how sin makes me feel. And incidentally, it's not like there's not still motivation in this to not want to sin. Well, of course, because like you don't want to coat yourself in shame and, and self-destruction. But my reason at this point is not doesn't have anything to do with being terrified of God. I understand the Old Testament talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which I think is more about reverence than it is knee-knocking fear. But one other verse, and I really am ending with this, says it better than anything else. 1 John chapter 4. I think we have that for the screen too. 1 John chapter 4. Um, if not, I've got it here. That's fine. Verse 18. Oh, there we go. John says... There is, could you read this out loud with me? Because I think you might just need to hear yourself read it out loud. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. Can we just read that one more time? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. Now, did you hear it? There is no fear in love. They can't coexist. Perfect love casts out fear. It drives it out. It dispels it. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. When John Wesley would talk about sanctification and holiness, this is what he would talk about. Becoming perfect in love wholehearted devotion to God. Because the idea is that if, you're, if you give yourself completely over to loving God, that that's what a holy life would look like because love is always driving out fear. You know, I know a lot of people won't acknowledge it this way, but I feel like the most harmful things that people do to themselves in this world are inevitably driven out of fear. Fear that there won't be enough, Fear that they're not enough, that God will not be enough. Some kind of fear, some kind of insecurity. What almost always is the things that drives us to these places. What else can deal with our fear except love? Love casts out fear. You know, I think I'm finally at a place in my life now to where I get this, at least theoretically, if I don't, even I don't live there all the time. Because how many times in my life have I, I've been gifted in my life at times, most of the time, to where I'll have a handful of friends, a handful of people I can really trust with just about anything. Or the worst season in my life, I had for several years a great therapist I saw every, every week. I personally, by the way, am, am, am a big fan of you can have Jesus and a therapist. This is not mutually exclusive. Feel free to have both. I love Jesus and good therapists. But I, I got to a place where I realized how weird it was that I still thought there were people in my life 
who I could come to more easily than I could God about the stuff I was really, really dealing with in my heart. Like, do I think my therapist loves me better than God does? You think your grandmother loves you better than God does? You think your best friend loves you better than God does? You've got somebody in your life that hopefully that you could talk to and not have to feel shame even when you're struggling, and you think somehow that they're, they love you better than God? Finally came to realize just how weird that is. Like, who should I turn to quicker? Who should I go to faster than God when I'm in a place of deep need? Who is more eager who, who, to, to, to be with me in those places, in those broken places, than God? Nothing to be ashamed of. I, I, whenever people, one of the things I, I, I said I was going to be done, and I, I, I basically am, and this is a good segue into communion, I think, but because I do what I do, and I talk about brokenness, and I talk about all kinds of experiences, one thing that I really value and appreciate, I don't solicit this, I'm not a therapist, there are things I'm not trained to help people with, and I'll quick say, like, I don't, a lot of things I don't know, but, you know, people will talk to me about stuff, and I'm a vault, I take that very seriously, if somebody tells me about a problem or whatever, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't say anything about that to another living soul, but it's funny how often still people will come up to me They'll tell me about something going on in their life because they felt touched by something that I said and it spoke to them or whatever. And it starts with this whole preface of like, you can just kind of feel it in the air even if they don't say it. But sometimes they do say it. Man, you're just not going to believe. Like, I'm, I'll tell you, but you're just not going to believe it. I'm sure you've never heard anything like this before. Y'all, how, how ma- just how many ways are there really of self-destructing your life? I know we use this phrase in a different context. People talk about original sin. In a way, there's nothing less original than sin. Not that many ways to do it. Handful of categories. It's like, uh, it'd be like going to the doctor and just like, doctor, I've got this thing. I've got this thing I'm dealing with. I'm sure you've never seen anything like this before. Of course he's seen things like, he's a doctor. He's seen all of it before. You're going to shock the doctor? You're going to be scandalized? Now, always, it breaks my heart. People, I always just, man, I just like, like, I always just want to hug people right then. Like, look, I promise, I promise. You're not going to tell me, you're not going to tell me anything that scandalizes me. I've read the Old Testament. <laughs> what do you think is in your life that's going to be more scandalous than that? <laughs> and really, that's one of the things I actually love about the Old Testament is it reminds us that all of, all of these things, too, are, are part of the human story. There's just nothing that's that outrageously unique in that way. And what I find, though, consistently happens over and over again is that people, it's so life-changing for people, though, when they feel like they can actually talk about those things, when they can bring things into the light, which is, by the way, the only thing that God ever cares about and bringing things into a life. I'll admit, there have been some times in my life where I feel like God has brought some things into the light that I didn't really particularly want in the light. Was it exactly my full choosing? But you know what I've come to believe? I, God never, ever exposes anything for the sake of shaming anybody or punishing anybody. If God brings something in the light, it's for one reason, one reason only, because it's in the light that you get healing. Also, 1 John, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But if we claim we have no sin, we make him out to be a liar, and his truth is not in us. What do you think it means to walk in the light? It's about walking in truth. It's about walking exposure. Not about walking perfectly, but walking in the truth. Not walking in self-deception. Any kind of healing and wholeness is possible. Will you not bury yourself in self-deception? Ah, man, I did not mean to go this long into all these things. But that's the other thing that shame does. It, shame just brings such self-deception. Because then you start, not only do you start spinning to other people, you start spinning to yourself. And, and so even then, it, the, the, the issue in that place is not that God can't reach you where you are, but that, you know, God will not force his way past that mask and that facade. You're still pretending to be somebody you're not. God can't get to that person, that imaginary person that you're pretending to be. Walking in the light is about walking in exposure and walking in truth. Truth brings freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And even in that context, I don't have time to preach a whole sermon about it, but all my life I've heard that verse used to talk about freedom and worship. I don't think that's bad. I do think that when the Holy Spirit's moving in a room, there's freedom in worship. Lift your hands. Praise God. I'm, I'm completely cool with all that. It's not what that verse is talking about. That whole passage is where Paul is glorying in his weakness and, and in all the things that he suffered. And he talks about how, um, unlike Moses, who kept the veil on so that people wouldn't know when the glory came and left, you have seen the glory through our unveiled faces. The whole thing. The whole context for where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, is about being able to be truthful and honest about where you really are. That's the kind of freedom the Holy Spirit brings. The freedom where you don't have to hide. Not about being able to dance and run the house. I'm actually in favor of dancing and running the house. That's just not what it's about. It's about being free to be who you are, to be where you are in the light of God's presence. And I've never seen anybody do worse for, for bringing everything into the light. There is no risk factor in that. Well, man, maybe, what if, what, if, what if maybe by bringing this thing in the light? You know, for one thing, I just find that, I, I, I had no, this talk has taken on a life of its own. For one thing, I just find that um, sometimes just saying something out loud, I mean, it just minimizes its power over you. Mr. Rogers famously said to his friends, I don't think this is ever on the TV show, he told Henri Now and the priest, everything that's mentionable is manageable. I think about that phrase almost every day of my life. Everything that's mentionable is manageable. If you can talk about it, it can't be dealt with. But if you can't talk about it, well, that's, that's, when, that's when it really feels hopeless. Because you're, you're just locked up in here, you're just locked up in your head. And you get stuck in the loop. You get stuck in the Chick-fil-A McDonald's gas station all-night drive to Ocala loop. And, in that, and when you're in that kind of pain and isolation, all you can think is more donuts. This whole thing is working out. <laughs> Stand with me. I don't have anything else to say about that. It's a good... Um, I love that we're getting ready to come to the Lord's table in a moment like this because, I don't know, what, what does this meal mean if not for reminding us?
of the price that Jesus paid to be able to remove the sting and the shame of sin. To remind us that the provision is already here. That's so much of what this meal is about. So God, as we prepare our hearts now to come to the table, I just want to pray very specifically and briefly, actually, for any friend who's here who's stuck in a cycle of shame. I pray that you would bring your light where there is light, where there is love, fear is driven out. Shame is cast down. So I pray that your light now would flood all of the dark places. And I pray that for a moment now, God, you would heal our eyes so that we realize that when we look at you, that we have nothing to fear. I pray that you would heal our eyes, God, so that we would um, just be delivered out of that vain imagination we have of you from the place of despair and shame. Allow us to see you for who you really are. Allow us to see for a moment how you actually do look at us. I actually do see your, your sons and your daughters who are here. Give us that grace now, and I pray that you just prepare us now for this feast. In Jesus' name, yeah. Do you guys have the words of the Eucharistic prayer for the screen by chance? Do y'all do that? The Lord be with you and also with you, all that. Oh, we got the confession first. That's right. I did this Sunday too. This is when I get in a big way of preaching. What a good place for this <laughs> right now in light of all this. Confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. So just receive the cleansing now. Can we say this together? Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another that we have sinned against you by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not fully loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not always had in us the mind of Christ. You alone know how often we have grieved you by wasting your gifts, by wandering from your ways. Forgive us, we pray, most merciful Father, and free us from our sin. Renew in us the grace and strength of your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen and amen. Oh, yes. And now, sons and daughters of God, receive his forgiveness. Not my forgiveness. It is the Lord who has forgiven you. It is the Lord who declares you to be righteous, to be free, to be holy. Receive that Breathe it in even now, in Jesus' name. It is a right and good thing, a joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Going to Luke 22. On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. 
And when he had given thanks to you, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Amen. So, God, we just ask you now that you would consecrate these elements and you allow this to become for us the body and blood of Christ. We pray that you would sanctify us also, that we might be your meal, that we might be your body that is broken, blessed, and distributed for the sake of the world, that we might be the drink offering that is poured out for those friends around us that we love and that you died for. And I pray specifically, God, now, uh, as there just seems to be an unction on this tonight, that as people come to receive this meal tonight, I pray in Jesus' name that shame would be broken. I pray in Jesus' name that addiction would be broken. I pray that everything that's been in darkness will be brought into the light for the sake of healing, for the sake of wholeness. Thank you, God, that even now, even now, we can just feel your light filling us, shining all around us for no other reason, God, not to shame us, but so that you can fix us, restore us, repair us, Make us whole. What a strange exchange this is that we receive this bread that's broken, but it makes us whole. Let that be so even now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And finally, this wonderful word of invitation. This is the table not of the church, but of Jesus Christ. It's made ready for those who love God and for those who want to love God more. So come you who have much faith. And you have little, you who have been here often, and you who have not been here for a long time or ever before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come, not because it is the church who invites you, but it is Jesus himself who invites you to meet God here. Amen. Come and receive from the table of the Lord. Thank you for listening today, everyone. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram. You can also support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash sonofapreacherman, and you can help us keep this podcast going. Now remember, no matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will help you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.